Welcome to NASA Talks. I'm Karen Grahalis, Manager of Communications and Investor Relations for NASA. Today, we present the next episode of NASA's webcast series, NASA's Senior Issues and Diminished Capacity Committee Presents. This webcast series was developed by NASA's Senior Issues and Diminished Capacity Committee to provide an inclusive platform for learning from the best and brightest minds. We will discuss issues that matter most to those dealing with at-risk investors. The webcast episode you're about to hear addresses the theme, Financial Services Industry Experts Speak. This recording features speakers from the financial services industry discussing how they work within their firms and with other stakeholders to mitigate vulnerable investor harm. Now, please join us for the webcast recording. Good afternoon. On behalf of NASA and its Senior Issues and Diminished Capacity Committee, welcome today's, to today's NASA Presents program. My name is Melanie Lubin, and I am NASA's President and Maryland Securities Commissioner. I have the privilege this year of leading this great association of securities regulators in the states, provinces, and the country of Mexico as we work together to educate investors and protect them from fraud and abuse. First, I want to thank the outstanding efforts of NASA's Seniors Issues and Diminished Capacity Committee for bringing this important topic to a wide audience. Thanks also to the NASA Corporate Office team for their work in coordinating the logistics of today's webinar. Today's program strikes at the very core of NASA's mission, protecting investors. Thank you, Melanie. On behalf of NASA, I am pleased to introduce the New Jersey Bureau of Securities Enforcement Chief and NASA Senior Issues and Diminished Capacity Committee Chair Richard Such. On behalf of my fellow Senior Issues and Diminished Capacity Committee members, and from me, I send a warm welcome to all of the people out there tuning in for this conversation. In our work here, we protect investors who, because of their vulnerability, cannot or do not make sound investment decisions. Vulnerable investor exploitation has a direct cost to investors estimated to be at least in the tens of billions of dollars annually. Societal cost, what it costs the government and the victims' families who are dealing with this tidal wave of fraud is a multiple of that enormous sum. Bad actors in this space take many shapes, from family members to caregivers to social media-based romance scammers, and financial advisors. Today, we will be focused on how financial services firms design and operate programs to mitigate this fraud when vulnerability or exploitation are suspected. The good news is firms like the ones you will hear about today can and do mitigate harm. Through the lessons learned in the field, through process-driven actions, and through information sharing in venues like today's event, these firms and the stakeholders that they work with drive down incidence rates and create interventions to thwart bad actors seeking to take advantage of an investor's vulnerability. None of us who work in this space is deterred by the odds that we face, and NASA is delighted to lead here in pursuit of its core mission to protect investors, particularly those who most need our protection due to vulnerability. So let's get started here. I'd like to first briefly introduce the guests on our first panel. We have Nancy Hefter, 
from the Lincoln Investment Companies. He is the Director of Compliance. We have Ron Long, Wells Fargo Advisors, Director of Elder Clarence Client Initiatives. We have Heather Murphy from Commonwealth Financial Network. He's the Director and Deputy Chief AML Officer. We have Tom Miraswa, Morgan Stanley, Executive Director in the Branch Advisory Group of the Legal and Compliance Division. And finally, we have Debbie Norrie, who's suffering with a little bit of a cold from Fidelity Investments, Senior Director of Elder Financial Investigations. I would point out that Nancy, Ron, and Marin Gibson, who you will hear from later, also serve on NASA's Senior Issues Committee Advisory Council. Nancy, let's get started with you. You have about 2,000 registered agents at LinkedIn. How did you put together your firm system? Well, thanks, Rich, uh, for having me today. Um, you know, uh, it, it sort of comes about as things occur at the firm, right? You start getting complaints and issues and you start seeing patterns and, and it sort of snowballs into we need to have a, a process for this. And this is way before, you know, any of the FINRA regulations or, or such have come into play. So uh, I'm in compliance. And so a lot of these issues start there. Um, and it's myself and a legal associate that work on these issues. And granted, it's not our full-time job, uh, but we take each referral and treat them uh, you know, as importantly as you would anything else and uh, work the case, so to speak. So let's let's go to the other end of the spectrum. I'm sure there are people out there that sympathize with only having one or two people in the department. And let's face it, there are a ton of investment advisors out there, particularly the state covered investment advisors that are frequently one person shop. So, uh, Ron, uh, let me turn to you. You're you're I don't how many registered reps as well as have nowadays? Depending on the day, we're anywhere between 11 and 13,000. OK, and so, so the way. We would work the program as we centralize it with a team that based in St. Louis and partners with another team in Portland. So probably total about 35, 40 folks between the two teams that take the reports in. And then those that need a closer analysis, that work is done. Maybe an interview with the financial advisor as manager or what have you. And then the report is filed with Adult Protective Services. And we'll talk more about reporting later, but it's that sort of centralized view where you don't want to have a one off in one region, which is better than another region, all coming into the central, uh, taking care of all 50 states. Deb, you're somewhere in between those two uh, figures on registered agents at Fidelity. Uh, basically the same setup uh, or how do you do it? Yeah, so typically the same setup, you know, we're such a large form firm that fortunately we are able to have dedicated groups um, that handle the diminished capacity and senior issues. You know, we get a lot of support from our, our legal team and our back offices. So we have very dedicated teams of up to 30 people that are handling our diminished capacity concerns and our investigations. So as a big firm, we are fortunate. We recognize that other firms, you know, don't have that kind of volume or capacity to do so. Um, so, you know, I think it's important that everybody has some kind of escalation 
process in person to go to for these cases. Heather, uh, Commonwealth is on the smaller side, not small, but smaller. How many registered people are at Commonwealth? Um, we have just over 2,000 uh, registered or duly registered advisors. How is your system set up? Um, similar uh, to everyone's, we have a centralized group. So we have um, two full-time analysts who conduct the investigations uh, and myself. And we also have a lot of support from uh, in-house counsel, as well as we partner quite a bit with our compliance department, um, whether it's in, you know, individuals that are conducting branch audits or that are taking incoming calls from our advisors. We get a lot of our referrals um, through compliance. Tom, last but not least, uh, what does it look like over at Morgan Stanley? Well, the consistent theme is the centralization. You need to have someone in charge of this. Uh, one group, wherever it resides, risk, compliance, legal, uh, or AML, it could still be one, one central group. Um, the size depends upon the size of the firm. Um, it's, a, it's an assessment you have to make given the volume. I mean, smaller matters, the one hit matters, take less focus, but there's some that carry on for a very long period of time, become very, very complex, uh, both with the activities of the clients who may be uh, resistant to being assisted in, as they're being exploited to other family members coming in and, and throwing themselves into the mix. Um, but multidisciplinary composition is very important, whether they're part of the group or people to whom you can turn for assistance. You need people from global financial crime. You need people from security to help pursue, uh, help pursue funds once they've left. You need people from legal or risk to assess uh, the legal or the risk uh, ramification decisions. And you also need, as, as Ron alluded to, somebody focused on reporting. Um, to make sure the reporting is consistent across the board in those states that are mandatory and those states that are permissive. And separately, we haven't discussed this, you need to have a good internal record keeping for many reasons. You want to make sure that no ball hits the ground, so you're tracking the matters that are out there. And you want to make sure as well that if you are challenged at some point in time, whether by a regulatory audit or by a litigation subpoena, you can demonstrate that the actions you've taken, what actions you've taken, and that they are a very reasonable and good faith response to what appears to be either um, future or current or past financial exploitation. Thanks, Tom. I, I would add, particularly for the smaller firms that, you know, uh, we, we end up in New Jersey, we have a report hold law, and we're going to talk more about reporting out to securities agencies and APS, but we, we try to help firms. You know, firms frequently just don't know exactly what to do, and, and we do. Um, and, you know, we take phone calls all the time about what next. All right. I'm going to pivot now to uh, the segment that Deb called Stopping the Bleeding. Uh, and, and this is when, you know, we know something bad is happening. We know we have a bad actor. We know money is at risk. So, you know, how would you kick us off on Stopping the Bleeding, Deb? So, you know, Rich, as you mentioned, billions of dollars um, are in losses to our seniors, um, and that's only reported cases, right? So oftentimes, because this is so difficult to detect, oftentimes there are already disbursements that have taken place right before the red flags are identified. So it's very important to stop the bleeding, right? And the number one reason is we know from experience that when the money is gone, the money's gone. Right. So technology has made our lives much more convenient, but it's also made it easier for financial crime. 
So money has moved so quickly across various platforms. You know, you have ACH, you have Wire, you have peer-to-peer payments like Venmo and PayPal, and you have cryptocurrency. Um, Oftentimes, money has moved internationally or to third parties and dispersed very quickly on the other end. So, you know, even trying to recover some of these funds is unsuccessful, especially if, you know, more time has gone by. So very important to stop the Yeah, I was talking to somebody in my unit today about something that happened in 2019 um, and talking to the lawyer for the person. And uh, the money moved from the firm, a major firm, uh, to a bank. uh, And then ATM withdrawals over a period of time that made virtually no sense. And and the person's older and frankly doesn't remember much of it. So once the money's gone, it's gone. What, What can be done to stop? The bleeding in your judgment. What, what what action can firms take, with or without government intervention, to stop the bleeding? Right. So I think it's important that we talk a little bit about twenty one sixty five, right? Because this was really critical for firms, um, where the rule initially, when it when it rolled out, was a put it gave firms a safe harbor to place a, uh, a stop on a transaction if they believed elder financial exploitation was occurring. Right. So initially, it was a fifteen day hold. Um, with the potential to add 10 days. And more recently in March, there was an amendment to this rule where it, there was an additional 30 days added on because it does take some time to perform you know, an investigation. Now, some firms, maybe even you know, larger firms uh, like Fidelity, had something in place where maybe through a customer agreement where we were able to put a restriction on um, a distribution. So I think 2165 has been very important for firms that did not have that in place, allowing them a way to stop a transaction that they were suspicious of, perform an investigation, and find out you know, what is really going on. Heather, um, what, what are you confronted with and, and how do you try to clamp down? I mean, to, her, to Deb's point, uh, you know, the rules have been around. They've been, become more liberal, the FINRA rule. States, it varies state to state. I personally have not seen uh, a lot of sentiment by regulators uh, to, uh, I'll say, toy with firms that are trying to lock down transactions for the right reason. If, and if I had a choice, if I were at a firm, lock it down or not, because I was worried about regulators, I would lock it down 10, 10 times out of 10. How does it work at Commonwealth? Well, I would say we are on the side of caution. Um, you know, we would definitely want to um, lock a, a lock an account down where we suspected there was exploitation. But it's almost a balancing act too, because you have you know a client's needs, especially if it's a senior investor and they need a certain amount for income or their circumstances change. So striking that balance of you know protecting their their financial well-being, but at the same time, you know, being open to alternatives if you need to pay um, a care facility directly or, you know, in client needs monthly income. Yeah, so, important point. You can only lock down the suspected exploitive transaction. You can't just summarily lock down everything. Right, Ron? Well, that's usually true. But again, if you are talking about protecting the senior, what you don't want to do is say, I locked this transaction down, and then you go and find that they've moved money in other ways. But yes, 
We want to focus on the transaction. And remember, the seniors, the biggest part to stopping the bleeding, as Heather hinted at, is the senior who says, who are you to tell me that the love of my life can't be in Belarus? Well, how do you know it's not a great business in Nigeria? So you put the firm in a tough position when we're saying, how do we slow these transactions down? Nancy, uh, anything to add on this? Yeah, I would say also it's helpful to not only look at the transaction, like Debbie said, the one that's now raised a red flag, but also look at other past transactions um, because it helps you establish if there is a pattern. And we work with the financial advisor very closely to understand, okay, why was that withdrawal taken? Why was that withdrawal taken? And to try to craft the story if things are just not adding up. And we certainly also, um, for instance, if it was ACH or wired to a bank, uh, we want to work with that bank to see if they also have flagged the account for concerns. So we definitely try to work with partners uh, to piece the story together in an effort to protect the investor together. You make a good point on the bank. Sometimes I'm surprised at banks' ability to pull back transactions. So it really is time of the essence for sure. But banks can do things that might surprise you sometimes. Tom, anything? Right. And yeah, just ahead. one more thing I would add is that, too, um, we need to know this information in order to determine in the fraud area whether to file a suspicious activity report, a SAR. So that also is important to understand the background. Uh-huh. So I, I agree with everybody said, just clarifying some issues. Um, a, we use our security department to assist in pursuing money that may have left. We're certainly not at high level of recovery, but if you can act when you're stopping the bleeding, if you can also take active steps to pursue the money um, at other banks, there is an international network where if security contacts security, they will at least pause the flow of funds so they can't move on. And certainly when you're trying to block transactions in the account that you are housing, um, you are um, you can ask for bills, ask the client to provide you a copy of the bill to confirm that the payment you're making um, is a legitimate payment because we've seen that clients who are, as Ron said, totally engrossed in whatever activity they're being victimized by, um, they are loath to listen to reason. And so they will start playing cat and mouse, probably at the direction of the stamster and seeking money for other apparently legitimate transactions that don't exist. And the last thing is welcome very much is the modification to 2160, rule 2165 of FINRA, and also many states have uh, legislated where we can not only stop a transaction of a disbursement of funds, but also a transaction of a security purchase or sale, which can also further protect the client, which has been a very helpful step to enable to give us more tools to use clients away from the expectation. No doubt. We, we have a question from the audience that's going to lead us perfectly to our next segment in this. What steps do you take if you're dealing with a Cedar citizen that has disorders like Alzheimer's dementia? Uh, and that kind of goes to Ron's point. You know, you, you are dealing with somebody that you know has lost their fastball. Um, and uh, to me, the, the best tool in the toolbox is to have some other person related to that person to talk to. 
Um, I mean, there are legal avenues people can take. You can try to get a guardian appointed at state level. You can get adult protective services involved. We've had cases like that. Um, but that, that's going to lead us right to the trusted contact. That's to me. Uh, I know that if there were two things that you, if you all had a magic wand, you'd like, it would be a trusted contact on the file and some easy way to report in uh, to all the states. So, Heather, why don't you kick us off on trusted contact? Sure. Um, I, I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer. I mean, it's an emergency contact. We, If you think about all the places in your life that you're asked for an emergency contact, your doctor, your gym, why not your financial professional? Um, the trusted contacts aid us so much when we're investigating these cases. Like you said, if you're dealing with someone that has diminished capacity, you need to engage someone else to try and put the pieces together. So I think um, having a trusted contact on, on file is, is integral to a lot of these investigations. Otherwise, you are potentially looking in client records for beneficiaries and trying to determine if there is another avenue by which you can obtain a person to partner with to try and help the senior. Yeah. If I could jump in. Yeah, go ahead, Ron. I, I, I just say, wanted here. to say. Go ahead. No, I was going to say there are a couple things here, which trusted contact would be good for those who had the foresight to plan. But we're fortunate in 17 states, they will allow you to reach out to someone who's reasonably associated with their account. And then I would say your absolute fallback, and I encourage all the firms out there, is to look at your account agreement, which you should put in language that says, if we suspect fraud, or if we suspect that you may be uh, challenged in some way, we reserve the right to slow down or pause transactions. That's not state law per se, but that at least is your contractual agreement that might give you a fallback position. Uh, I will point out uh, that when we did research as part of an initiative we did for commentary on the NASA Model Act, we went to, well, some of you know this, I went to firms, we went to firms, and we went to states to try to figure out are, are the investors out there that we're hoping to protect complaining about how these rules are being administered, port and hold laws, stops on disbursements, stops on transactions. And what we found is that there really is no statistical significant number of people that's unhappy. Virtually everybody uh, is happy. And ironically, or perhaps not, the people that do complain end up being the bad actors themselves that are trying to get the money out of the people we're trying to protect. Um, New Jersey is one of those states that has the uh, anybody reasonably associated with the account. We thought that was the right thing to do. Uh, Nancy, uh, what, what do you do? Uh, at your shop with trusted contact or if there is none designated? Well, you know, it, it was a challenge because we have about 350,000 clients. We've been in business for 50 plus years. So of course the 2165 rule, um, you know, came in well past uh, that period of time. So certainly, you know, we added the trusted contact uh, question in our new account form. And certainly it's, you know, a little easier to get it going forward. It's a lot harder to get it 
um, for clients that were already clients of ours. And to be quite honest, we have, you know, a, a, a pretty low adoption rate. And um, it's not for the fact that it doesn't always come up as a question. I just think um, either representatives might be a little hesitant to ask for it, or there are suspicions by clients as to how it would be used. You know, that they're very, um, can be very uh, private about their finances and they don't want their children to know about it or, you know, other close relatives. So they're, they have suspicions about it. Yeah. You know, I would just say that I also think that people generally, uh, they avoid thinking about some kind of negative situation, right? But thinking about, you know, they underestimate the potential that they may need trusted contact for someone on the account. And this could be, you know, it's not just about aging, right? You could be in an accident. You could, you could be on vacation and we can't find you. You could have abandoned property. There are other reasons to add a trusted contact to your account, not just about we have concerns about your capacity uh, or exploitation. Yeah, the, uh, the, uh... I've heard people say, you know, you should think of it like the emergency contact you have at a dentist's office. You know, you, you, you never hesitate to list your spouse, your, your child, your parent in that situation. And, and you're right, it could be episodic problem. It could be a chronic problem. Um, and the ta- getting the take rate up is a big deal uh, because most firms I speak with say that, I don't know, somewhere between 25 and 30 percent of the accounts will, you know, designate a trust contact. Uh, there is a workaround, as Ron mentioned, by putting in a, in the client agreement. Uh, and I will mention that I that uh, we heard uh, from Ed Jones on this, uh, and they have been able to, through some fairly simple processes, come up with a system uh, there where, with over eight million accounts that they cover, they've got a take rate on trusted contact of seventy percent plus, which is extraordinary to me. They don't require anybody to sign anything in writing. Uh, they season the clientele with information about the purpose of the trusted contact. They have the assistants that work with the FAs, you know, follow up and, and get engaged. You know, they're frequently the point of contact and have great relationships with the investors. Um, and they use things like, for example, the California wildfires. You kind of pointed out, Deb, an example. Like, it's, it's a true unexpected event. When they had the California fires, they did a blitz on California and, and used it as an example for others. Like, this is exactly why the trusted contact exists. Tom, um, any thoughts? No, I agree with all that. I mean, it's, uh, it's very important. It certainly is a priority of FINRA as well. And it's uh, 220,000, 2022 priorities to focus on trusted contact, finding innovative ways to uh, attract clients to that process, whether by communicating digitally with them, including something in statements, as a statement stuffer. Um, but we all recognize that. I agree. Clients many times are reserved about letting other people know about where they have their money, how much money they have. And they are concerned that that line may be crossed. Even with the most trusted people that they know, they still want to maintain uh, a separate um, a distinction between that. So we, as with many other firms, are looking at new creative ways to press that. Um, in addition to educating the financial advisors, they must uh, consistently ask the clients about this. You know, we obviously, most firms should be, do now, um, they should be asking this question about a trusted contact upon opening an account. 
And whenever there's an amendment to the client profile, this should be done. But it still has been an upward slog. Been tough. Yeah. So there have been a couple of questions. There was a question about how do you figure out which states have the authority to talk to somebody reasonably associated with the accounts? Uh, one place I know that you can figure that out, it's not segmented. I know the Bressler map, uh, Bressler, Amory, and Ross has a map that has the particulars of all 50 states' laws. Um, and Ron, I don't know if you have a list, but we can certainly circulate that after for the people participating. I have the list. You, okay. Um, Even better. Yeah, yeah, th th that's right. Uh, and then... Uh, is there a periodic the question comes? Is there a periodic recertification of the trusted contact? I, I don't think the answer to that is yes. If they're on file as the trusted contact, they're on file as the trusted contact. Uh, um, but in the seventeen eighty three, uh, Richard, excuse me, the seventeen eighty three, um, every every periodic assessment with the client of their profile, it should be a question that the firm asks the client um, to confirm that they do have this trusted contact on, and this is someone they want to keep on. In case there's been a change in the relationship and it may have the trust account may have fallen out of trust. Makes sense. And the, the other thing I'll add, and we're going to have to move on to the next segment. By the way, any questions not answered here, we will endeavor to answer in the coming week or so. It's just not possible to answer all the questions and cover the content, but we are all committed to answer uh, the questions. Um, all right, so let's move on. To privacy issues, Tom, um, and and we've talked a couple of times about the tightrope walk between doing what we think is right for the client and uh, obviously protecting the client and their privacy. Uh, why don't you lead us off here? Sure. Well, I think there's good news uh, with regard to that, and that is, I think the law as it exists provides wide amplitude for firms who are acting in good faith. Uh, with the basis for their actions based upon factual assessment uh, can undertake to protect clients and for their exception to the privacy laws. Let's drop back to make sure we're on the same page. The standard of privacy in the industry is set by the Graham Leach Bliley Act and is interpreted by Regulation SP. What that says is that firms must protect clients' non-public information and they must set the standards to the clients for what their policies are and then permit the clients to opt out. But those that law and that regulation also goes further to say, however, there the one exception is when a firm is uh, seeking to uh, protect a client uh, from or prevent an actual or potential fraud, an authorized transaction, or claims or other liability. Very, very broad. It was so broad that it caused confusion. And I don't know if you remember, but in 2013, eight agents, federal agencies, had to issue a, a uh, guidance called the interagency guidance, which said that generally you can clearly provide information about a client's non uh, information about a client <clears throat> to local, state, or federal agency. And they also indicated, which may be the precursor to the trusted contact concept, that with a client's consent, you could disclose it otherwise. What they didn't address was that you could also provide it to unaffiliated third parties <clears throat> in, in an attempt to prevent a potential actual fraud. And Moving forward, FINRA came out with uh, guidance recently that made that clear, relying upon Reg SP, and is also bringing in the notions of 314B under the Patriot Act, which is consistent with what Nancy said about SARS, that you can, they, the anti-money laundering departments of the firms can communicate that way 
transmit information. The bottom line is, you want the, the wrap up is that whether it be under federal statutes or regulations or under state laws, such as alluded to, 17 states do permit non-public information provided to a reasonably associated individual, such as New Jersey statute, where the firm is protecting the client against financial exploitation. And nine states, in addition, have adopted language which simply point to the Bramley's Bliley Law and Reg SP and don't limit it to reasonably associated, but to any third party, or they call it a non-affiliated person, to protect against actual or potential fraud. The critical issue from my perspective is we are able to communicate whether between firms or with other entities or persons in order to protect the client. So long as you have a palpable threat of financial exploitation, that it has occurred, is occurring, or will occur in the context. And which goes back to my comment before about it's very important to keep your record keeping up to date in these situations. This is a very high touch area. Privacy is very important to right now to our society. And many regulators are looking at this issue. But in the context of the prevailing statutes, there are ways and openings to firms to protect their clients by sharing information with the appropriate entity, whether it be adult protective services, a law enforcement agency, a regulator, such as your division of securities, or other firms, or the third cousin once removed who you happen to know has an account with the firm, and the broker knows that this is person related to the client, and as they've socialized in the past, as long as you don't have information indicating that that person is associated with the fraud, in many states you can communicate to that person and ask questions about that not violating the law. And as Ron said, from a practical perspective, I have two comments. One is, I definitely agree with him, this language should be incorporated into your client agreement so that you have the ability to have, you know, there's always belts and suspenders, I'm not sure what else you'd use to keep your pants up, but you'd have state law exceptions, you would have um, the client consent, and you'd be able to move forward and protect the client. And the other thing is, I also noted in this privacy context, what people forget a lot of times is the FINRA helpline, the senior helpline, yeah. can be a valuable tool to communicate with when, if you are hesitant to communicate, if you may not be certain as to with whom you should communicate, calling them and providing them the information and letting them know that you're hesitant to step out of the, the uh, privacy boundary, but would they take steps in that regard? We have received as a firm several times communication from FINRA from other firms, but FINRA was used as intermediary. And that same concept also applies to adult protective services. Pressed for the issue, we've oftentimes used adult protective services, let them know after we've reported a matter that there are other people with them, and APS can communicate on the situation, and not uh, even if we are loath to do that. Yeah, I think one of the things that some uh, close observers will notice in Tom's presentation is the word fraud. I still stress that client agreement because it's unclear if diminished capacity in the absence of fraud will allow me to pick up the phone and call Morgan Stanley and say, we have a common client. There's no fraud, but I'm very concerned about her mental capacity. I might make that call, but it's, it's a close question. I'm thinking, a very good point, Ron. Folks. If it's embedded in the contract, you do have amplitude on that issue. And a lot of times it might say that for the protection of the client and or the firm, they permit us to either you know, withhold the transaction. I would also include that in that language. 
um, or to communicate to a third party. And that way you cover both ends of the spectrum, both financial exploitation as well as potential diminished capacity. Okay, we're, we're going to have to move on, Tom. Somehow you made listening to privacy issues fun. <laughs> I don't know how you did that, but good for you. Um, now we get to where the rubber meets the road, and that is reporting out and holding transactions. Ron, why don't you get us going on this one? Yeah, I'll get us going and try to catch up a little bit on time, but this is where the rubber meets the road. You're going to set up those teams, but then what do you do? Then there are a couple of issues that you have to figure out. In the U.S., we're now divided into mandatory reporting and permissive reporting states. You have to make a decision which state you're in. What I would encourage most firms is to consider yourself mandatory regardless of the underlying state law. So you're going to report to Adult Protective Services, but then there are a number of states where you have to report also to the state securities regulator. A couple of states require that you also report to law enforcement. Then as you go down the list, I think there are appropriate cases where you want to pick up the phone and call FINRA because of the nature of the underlying fraud. And beyond FINRA, I think you need to consider our federal authorities in some situations as well, particularly uh, the elder justice coordinators who are in all 94 U.S. attorney districts, but also Secret Service, for the U.S. Postal Inspector. So making the report of elder financial abuse to Adult Protective Services many times just begins the conversation. And then the question of who makes that report. We all said centralized, but absolutely make it clear. The financial advisor on the scene almost never, ever should be the person picking up the phone calling Adult Protective Services, save for the example the situation where they should call 911 if there's physical or in front of them, they see ongoing harm and that could be worse if they didn't call uh, law enforcement to step in immediately. But yeah. you want the centralized team making those reports, doing yeah. the background work and what have you. Again, even if you're a smaller firm, coach somebody up and that, let that be the person that everyone knows to go to when these situations arise, if for no other reason, to get that second set of eyes on the situation. Yeah, there's, I want to see if some others. Yeah, go ahead. yeah, there's. I mean, there's no doubt the rules contemplate that there's going to be a seasoned person at the helm making the decision about whether they've got a fact pattern on their hands that warrants a report out. They don't want novices mucking around in this machine. Deb, uh, anything to add on? Uh, you know when the trigger comes to report out? Yeah, so I would just add, I think it was, it was great that Ron listed other sources, right? So we all know this is state-by-state state legislation. So every state handles this differently. So it's important for you to realize if you call Adult Protective Services and they're going to screen out your case for, because it doesn't meet their criteria, that you have another avenue, right? That you can call a regulator, even if you're not mandated, or you can call the elder justice coordinator or you might want to call the local sheriff. It all is really dependent in state by state. And I think over time we have learned what are our better avenues. I mean, if you have a client that's being exploited and you have concerns that the bad actor is truly a bad person, I'm not sure you want to send an adult protective service caseworker out there, right? You want to understand what's going on first and then figure out who is best 
to um, to contact with regards to assisting and going out there. And, and like Ron said, could be more than one agency. So don't give up. You know, if you're falling, you know, if you're getting your door, you know, the door closed on you, keep going. There's there's a lot of resources out there. And again, I would encourage people, uh, you know, I know we take those phone calls uh, and, and you're not alone, whatever the size of the phone. Uh, we, we will try to help you figure it out. Heather, um, you've heard a lot, but uh, anything to add on, on figuring out how and when to report? No, I think, um, you know, obviously this, the jurisdiction's guidelines, but, you know, as Ron and Debbie said, you know, knowing that there's a, a, a wide variety of agencies that can assist you. And sometimes, um, you know, it's, um, it can be a challenge to, to engage. And I think part of um, getting someone to take the case, whether it's adult tech services, is also your influencing style. I feel that that's, that's been really important. Um, being able to state your case clearly and know your audience because adult protective services may not have the the financial training that we do and we may not um, see things in the same way. So I think it's really important to, you know, again, know your audience or you talk to a regulator, what your ask is and be clear and concise in order to hopefully get the outcome that you want. Yeah, you make a good point. I remember somebody saying, speak APS, speak, don't speak financial advisor speak. Um, and that's just kind of dumbing it down because APS agencies around the country didn't grow up dealing with financial transactions. They grew up around the country taking care of, care of people's literal physical safety, uh, food health issues, abuse issues. And, and now on top of all of that, they're being asked to help intervene in instances where state law requires a report to them. Nancy, uh, anything to add on this? Just quickly, I'd say that, you know, again, the financial advisor often is the one that is the boots on the ground as far as knowing what is happening in this situation. So oftentimes, uh, APS will want to speak to the financial advisor as a what they call collateral. You know, someone that had the direct communication with person that is potentially being exploited. So we definitely work together in um, getting them prepared for that type of conversation. I think I will want to Go say ahead, one thing with um, Nancy's talking about that leads to a challenge. It's not a whole lot we can do, but we should try to do better. We do have a number of agencies, a couple of law enforcement that go out to the perpetrator many times and say, ABC financial firm says you're working your mom over. That's not very helpful because quickly they come back into the branch and want to uh, have a showdown with whomever may have handled the situation. So it would be great if uh, we get that help, but more importantly, build a protocol for your folks, your frontline people, so that they know what to do when this happens, because it will happen. And you don't want to lie to them and say, we didn't report. You can come up with the appropriate phrasing that these are confidential. I can't neither admit nor did I. And then well, make sure you tell them to call legal as soon as possible. Yeah, Ron, I'm, I'm with you on this. Uh, we've had discussions about this in our unit. You really, what you want is for law enforcement to be in this mode of, I'll say, discovery as opposed to accusation. 
Um, the accusations, and, and, and much like, frankly, APS, most law enforcement, the likely law enforcement person, talk about local town police, didn't grow up trying to decipher, you know, what's going on with an, an exploitive financial transaction. So, um, you know, partnering with them, talking to them, you know, that's something we are working on doing. Totally agree. Tom, anything more? Yeah, for those that are less familiar with what we're talking about, I just wanted to make sure there's a clear line of distinction. We've been talking about reporting the observance of financial exploitation. What we're not reporting about, which is a totally separate report, is when you use the report and hold laws and you stop a transaction, which under FINRA rules can now be both a disbursement of funds as well as a securities transaction purchase or sale. And under many state laws, I think it's roughly 30 or so, um, they allow you to do the same. That legislation, the um, that's a separate report which has to be also presented to typically the division of securities and many times APS, and then you and you're required to do that in a very short window of time and potentially have to provide updates of your investigation while the hold is pending, so that the securities division can be aware of what transpiring. So it's that's a completely different reporting model, but comes back to what we've all talked about, which is a experience and centralization is very important. Whoever is providing these reports has to choose their words and their communications carefully to make sure that they apprise the securities division of what needs to be apprised, but don't make statements which they can't back up. Um, we're very focused on making sure that what we communicate is, is founded in fact, and that we're not interpreting facts and providing editorialization of what we, we see has occurred. Very important. Uh, so we have a couple of questions from the audience. Uh, anybody feel this uh, as they see? What has been your experience regarding APS state authorities taking action on a report of suspected abuse? Anybody on that? Very state by state. Go ahead. Tom. I would say this is Ron and I are on the same page. It's a, it's a state by state issue. It's even within the state. It's a uh, county by county issue, um, and it depends upon a lot of factors. And alluding back to um, what I don't probably just don't remember which my co-panelist said this before, but it's how you speak to and how you present the matter to APS. Um, I, to my team, we talk about scripting what we're going to say to make sure we accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, and don't mess with this in between. You want to be able to provide information which is going to attract the APS to handle the circumstance. They are, if we are flooded, I can't imagine how they are. They must be inundated with matters coming to attention because, as you alluded to, Richard, it's, it's not just financial matters. They're handling a whole huge case file of other types of matters that they traditionally have handled, but we are in addition to what they're doing. So we have to make sure that we, we present the matter efficiently, truthfully, but also that brings their, it captures their attention on the matter because it runs the gap. Some, some states, one might perceive it better than others, but I think the whole, the gamut is they're working very hard to protect the population and many of whom are amongst our clients. Let me, let me we have one more question and I think we're gonna have to pivot um, to the next topic. We have, we have a little more time here. Uh, the question comes, a client you are concerned about leaves your firm. Is there any effort made to pass on the information to the next firm? Is that allowed? 
Yeah, yeah, I I can speak that I've done that. Um, I've done that with people on this call. (laughs) Yeah. So um, yeah, we're we don't want to. Now, granted, a a lot of firms would just say, "Not my problem anymore," right? But I think for us to help each other, sharing that information and and what we've experienced um, with the client, so that the next firm is not um, blindsided by it is really important. Yeah, I would agree with Nancy. We try to help whenever we can. And you know, there are circumstances, unfortunately, where if we can't assist the client and they opt to leave the firm or we opt to exit the client, you know, we don't want to feel like we're just moving the problem, right? We're not just pushing it down the road, right? We're trying to help, right? We're trying to help them not be a victim anymore or get someone involved, things like that. So yeah, we absolutely, we absolutely do reach out. I'll say it feels like you should, doesn't it? It feels like you should. Uh, We have to move on to the next topic. Now we are on uh, the client investor handling issues. Uh, Obviously important. Uh, Nancy, why don't you get us going on this, please? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, what is happening is the client is experiencing a violation of trust, right? No matter if it's a relative, um, you know, a, a romance scam, whatever it is, this is an issue of a trust violation. And they're not going to come up and say, oh, thank you so much for letting me know that I was scammed and they took all my money. You know, they are coming from a defensive position because oftentimes they have believed what is being told to them, hook, line and sinker. And so you need to uh, empathize with them and not treat them like they're, they're stupid or an idiot for falling for this scam, even though it might be a scam that we you know, have heard over and over and again. They have to be treated as an individual. And also, as it comes from a, um, to the point of a diminished capacity scenario, um, you know, you don't want to make assumptions that just because they're a certain age that, well, of course, they've lost their capacity. That's also not always the case. So you definitely need to treat them as individual cases and determine how you're going to handle it from uh, from that point of view. Um, uh, what would you say here? I would definitely agree. Um, one technique we've often tried to use to make sure that the client is Cognizant of the fact that she or he is not alone, that they're one of many victims. Um, we try and provide information that's publicly available on, uh, on Google or whatever server your search engine you use to uh, show the evidence of scams that are occurring. Because Nancy said a lot of times these, do, these are matters that go to the heart. People are lonely. It was made worse by the pandemic when people were quarantined in their homes. And whatever people were able to say on Facebook or other methods of social media where they transfix the client on a relation that doesn't really exist and convince them to part with their money, those people believe it. No matter how we may sit back and say that's preposterous, they believe it. So you have to make sure that they understand that you're supporting them. It's, it's a little bit of tough love. Um, I found that you know one of the best things is to work speak to the advisor, make sure we understand what the client's profile is before we communicate to the, the client. Um, typically, to permit the broker some separation, 
we don't have the broken story on the call unless they think it's more appropriate. But a manager will come from a member of the management team will reach out and speak to the client. And it's very important, is it not to prejudge? Make sure you, you let the client know that um, it's a difficult situation, but we're here for them. Yeah. Um, sometimes yeah, look, we've been able to find specifics about the perpetrator and that you can sometimes do that. They tell you that he's a doctor from XYZ locale. We can confirm there's no doctor from that because his help paved the way. Yeah. I mean, I, I actually think I've talked to some of you about this, but I mean, you, you all have been in situations where the very scam being perpetrated on the investor has been reported in the news and you, it's, it's virtually identical. And you send them an article or a reporting on it. And this goes to Melanie's point about how it can be heartbreaking. And you, you know what's going on and you figure they should know, but that's you know rational thinking. Heather, uh, anything to add here on, on investor handling? Yeah, I think for, for me, the approach that I, I have taken um, and I kind of asked my team to take is to, you know, remember that you know, and use the term that the, the client has been victimized. You know, they haven't been scammed. You know, they're a victim of a crime. And I think it's important to have that, use that language. And um, I agree that there are times where it is very beneficial, depending on the relationship, to have the advisor on the call with me or with, with one of the analysts on my team while you're asking strangers a lot of nosy questions. Um, because I, I think it does help, especially uh, with that rapport. Otherwise, we do try and keep, keep our units separate, especially when we're making decisions about transaction holds. But I, I do think that having the advisor on can be really beneficial in these conversations. Uh, so the question comes, it's really not part of what we intended to cover. I, I, I have talked about this and I know uh, others have as well. How about instances where the FA has diminished capacity? That's kind of not the wheelhouse for what uh, I'll direct the asker of the question, you know, where to go on that. But it's definitely a question that needs some attention. Deb, uh, anything further on investor handling? You know, I would just say that you know, more often than not, they're embarrassed, right? And, and they're feeling, you don't have to be diminished to be exploited or a victim of a scam, right? We've, most of us have clicked on a bad link, right? You're not paying attention. You're in a hurry. Romance scam, I'll, I'll separate because I think that's a completely different animal. I think that's, there's a lot of brainwashing going on there. You know, it's love bombing. It's constant attention. And even when we've spoken to clients who have been victims, when they've realized they've been a victim, even after that, they still reference it like a breakup, right? Like they were still in that relationship because there was a lot of feeling and a lot of emotion going on there. And, you know, these scammers have a lot of time to invest in that. So, you know, sometimes when we call out to outside agencies, we try to say, you know, this is what this is what harmed the client. This is what happened to harm the client. This is what we would like you to do, because sometimes when we're speaking to them on the phone, we're not going to get through because immediately we're going to hang up. The scammer's going to be right there again. But sometimes sending someone out there like APS, like someone in uniform, right? Someone they trust out there to, to, to say it to them again sometimes makes a big difference. We, we've definitely seen that. I mean, we have an investigator now retired who firmly believed that nothing really helps like somebody with authority, actual authority, knocking on the door and making a compassionate visit. 
Nancy, is there anything more you want to cover in this segment before we uh, push along? No, I think um, no, I, I think everything's been covered rather well. Thank you. All right. We actually are uh, a little bit ahead of schedule, so we can spend uh, some time now on, I think, a critical issue, training. Uh, before we get to it, I'm just going to plug the uh, joint SEC FINRA NASA training module that was put out there. I don't know. It's, it's in the last fiscal quarter or two. It's it's ready made. Firms can you know take it and modify it for their own uh, purposes. It it doesn't take a ton of time. The other thing I'd point out, uh, everybody may not uh, know about, is AARP's Thanksgiving training. It is a fantastic tool, um, and the stats that that show the impact of the bank safe training on people, the bank tellers, and a lot of this money is going out through bank tellers, is nothing short of extraordinary in exchange, mind you, for like an hour or two worth of training. So, uh, Heather, uh, this is your segment. Why don't you get us going on training? Sure. It's kind of an area that I'm pretty passionate about. Um, I think with respect to financial exploitation and diminished capacity, I think that it's more of a training, the approach is more of a training program and not just a training session. While the core requirements like red flags and escalations are important to reinforce and to train on, I think it needs to be an ongoing series of discussions and different types of targeted trainings that um, are tailored for the audience. For example, we've had a lot of the questions that I get from advisors are, what happens when when I make a referral will happen next? So. Um, we have done some panels with advisors that have actually gone through uh, cases with us and we've presented those at our conferences and they've been very, very well received. Definitely fact patterns that people can think about and learn from that are real or even, you know, made up. I mean, that's how people go through law school and other education. Uh, Deb, any thoughts here? Yeah, so here at Fidelity, you know, we, we try to put this in any training we can, right? So, of course, we have it in our AML training. We have it in annual training. And, and last year, we decided to spread that out. So now we're doing quarterly training um, on this just to kind of show, you know, have a refresher. It, instead of just getting it all once a year, every quarter we might target something like, this is what scams look like, or um, this is what exploitation, you know, some of the cases that we've seen, give different scenarios, things like that. I mean, obviously, we have World Elder Abuse Awareness Day coming up in June, so we're going to do a, a, you know, a bigger campaign in, in that time frame. Uh, but we do think it's important that everybody's going to be affected by it, right? So like Heather said, you kind of want to target it a little bit. So when we do the frontline reps, we're going to want to talk about the red flags, right? When we train the, the individuals in the, in the dedicated groups, we're going to want to talk about how to speak with investors, how to train our advisors uh, platform, because their relationship is a little bit different uh, than our, than our um, you know, our retail brand, our retail uh, business line. So it is really audience driven, you know, on, on some of these trainings, although everybody should obviously be trained on the red flags and, and warning signs and things like that. And, you know, it, it's unfortunate that if anyone has ever, you know, had the experience of someone with Alzheimer's or diminished capacity, 
oftentimes it is your financial person that identifies it first, right? It's not the family member. They're, they're sometimes too close. They don't want to recognize it. They don't want to see it, right? Oftentimes it is really someone, um, you know, your advisor or your banker or someone in, in that space. Yeah, there's, there's no doubt that, you know, I, I think of the family as first, but you're right. If it's gradual and, and people are kind of in denial, they won't run and recognize it. Whereas, you know, advisors and firms know that they need to have clear-eyed people on the other end of the phone authorizing transactions. And they, they, may, be, they may be the first person to see it. Ron, what, what do you do? No, I agree with that. And, and one of the things I would say in training, and I know we're always on tight time limits, but don't ignore the benefit of the war story. Hearing from the advisors about their actual experiences. I saw in the chat earlier, somebody wanted to know what to do with the person reluctant to write a will. And the one advisor said that what I use is saying, you're either going to write the will or the government's going to write the will. You throw government out as the boogeyman, folks, not every time, but many times they'll, anything but having the government take over. Yeah, for sure. Um, Nancy? One other, yeah, one other thing I would add is uh, don't also forget that giving some not training, but education to clients, um, dripping, you know, recent scams or ways that they can protect themselves is also important. Um, especially, yeah, I think most of our firms probably have a social media presence uh, where you can have. Uh, your marketing department um, work with them to post articles on things of this nature. So don't forget the client facing articles that could also help in helping them identify a scam that might come across. Yeah. And I would just say there are great resources out there. The FTC has some really great resources on, on all types of scams um, that they can look at. ARP does the you know, a ton of scam alerts you can sign up for. So I think pointing our clients in, in the right direction with those resources and, you know, educating them is obviously the best thing that we can do. It's just, it's hard to get it all out there, I think. And, you know, they can become advocates as well. You know, when, when I've spoken with senior groups and they're embarrassed to talk about, you know, that they've been a victim of a scam or an exploitation, I always say, tell everybody, tell everybody how it went down, tell everybody you know, you're a victim and, and how it worked. You could be helping somebody else. And Tom, I want to turn to you, but there's no doubt. I mean, I've heard a lot actually lately about the, you know, blame the victim stuff. And, and, and there's a reason why these episodes are so seriously underreported. I've heard everything from one in five to one in seven to one in 44. Um, and it's because like, you know, if, if my mother had done it, you know, years ago when she was still with us, probably my first reaction would have been, mom, you know, what are you doing here? And so parents want to avoid that confrontation. Um, and and they, they know what not to say, much like, frankly, kids know what not to say to their parents. Um, uh, anything uh, you'd add here? The nice part of our last is you can say, I agree with everything everybody else has said, because I do. Um, it's a, but I would add, though, that when you're talking about, about the training and the educational components, it's not just to the clients, but it's also the people who are clients not concerned about their own situation, but about people they may love in their sphere of influence. So we try and direct some education to what to do when one of your relatives or friends 
succumbs to a fraud or starts suffering from some cognitive difficulty. So they don't focus on themselves, they focus on the people around them. And that way, hopefully, they'll internalize the message for when it occurs to them. The other element I would just say is the training is important and very important, not just to have war stories, as Ron alluded to, but also to um, the people who are creating the training need to be the people, the boots on the ground. They have to be the ones to give the insights as to how, what is more significant, what is less significant, where to focus and not. Um, if the training is occurring from back office or from home office and doesn't have that input, it will not be as effective as it is with, and that goes back to the war story reference, real-time references to what's happening. Um, I think it's a novel idea to have to do it quarterly as opposed to do it annually. Um, but the bottom line is it has to be comprehensive. It has to be mandatory. And everyone should take it. Um, no doubt. And, it, and, it, and it doesn't take a ton of time. It really doesn't take that much time. Right. Um, so, um, look, the, so we had a comment uh, from one of the listeners saying, I have found that many financial professionals are totally shocked at the percentage of times that the exploiter is actually the caretaker family member. And that kind of goes to what I said in my opening remarks. People that are not able to make sound financial decisions are, are exploited by, you know, there's a couple of silos. The immediate family, you know, it's, it's a big percentage of the time. And then you have the, you know, the romance scammers, the computer, uh, Microsoft people that want to help you with your computer, you know, international organized crime. And then, and then, you know, in, in this space, you know, the financial advisors and the firms usually are not the culprits. And by the way, when they are, you guys are calling me and saying, you know, something went wrong. You, you, you partner. And if, if it's bad conduct, it's bad conduct. So look, that's about as good a way to end it. Uh, I will I will mention that we all did discuss the idea of what it's like to work in this space, vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue. And we decided that it didn't make sense to address that here, but it should be addressed in a go forward program, which we will do. I cannot thank you all enough for appearing, preparing, and being so crisp on this phone call. And a special shout out. You're all great, but Tom, you made privacy issues fun. I don't know how you did it. So we're, what we're going to do now, I'm going to sign off with uh, Tom and Heather and Nancy. We're going to keep Debbie and Ron Long. And James, if you'd be good enough, I'd like to bring in uh, Marin Gibson. Uh, Marin, uh, you are uh, SIFMA's Managing Director and Associate General Counsel, State Government Relations. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Rich, to you and to all the state securities regulators and to NASA for hosting the webcast today. We have partnered with state securities regulators for many years, uh, working on um, policy and practice solutions to benefit senior investors. But the, the state securities regulators are an absolute key to the success of Helpful. Well, that's that's good of you to mention. Uh, I know uh, that this is something that has been near and dear to your heart for about a decade now, Marin. Uh, and and you know to the others on on this segment as well. Um, we all know that 
dealing with reports in different states is, you know, frankly, as different as every state can be culturally. You know, we have a very big uh, nation, obviously, and then you've got Canada on top of that. We're not covering Canada and its nine provinces. But, you know, and even frankly, in New Jersey, just, you know, from my own experience, it really does depend on what county, uh, you know, the reaction you're going to get. Like we've got a guy, as we say in Jersey, up in Bergen County, who's just an absolute ace when we have a problem. And he's as good as anybody I've met. And then, you know, there are other counties who just don't get that many reports or haven't had the exposure or whatever. So, you know, it's in that context that we wanted to talk with you three about, you know, what are the challenges? What are the headwinds? And, you know, again, I know I mentioned this earlier. I know that you Everyone wants a trusted contact on file. And the other thing you want is an easy way to make a report so you don't use your unit's precious time finding where to report and how to report, as instead you want to be making the report and acting on the report. So, Marin, why don't you talk a little bit about that context and the possibility of a solution with a centralized reporting system? Sure, thanks. So... Uh, Debbie touched on this and, and uh, as did Ron, but broker dealers in the securities industry in general have made great strides over the past 10 plus years in the recognition and training on identification of senior financial exploitation red flags, internal coordination and investigation of suspected senior financial exploitation has developed really, really well, very effective. A bunch of firms have developed the centralized teams that we heard about in the first panel. Um, but uh, once a suspicion is formed that the senior investor is being defrauded or is at risk, um, a report is ready to be made. And that is where the process really slows down and becomes very complicated. Rich, you mentioned the county by county aspect. That requires a jurisdiction dirt, uh, determination that can be really complex. Um, there's, you know, the local reporting, the method of reporting varies more than you'd think. Um, by state and locality, the report forms and formats vary. Um, and so that part of the process in us addressing senior financial exploitation has all of the barriers that it's had for years. It hasn't really improved like all of the other elements. So we really need to figure out a way to eliminate friction from that part of the process. And uh, we developed a plan Anybody who's worked on this may have heard me and Ron talking about it sometime over the past decade, all the time, um, to streamline and centralize reporting. We call it single portal reporting. Oh, and let me note that the CLE verification code has just popped up. 50420. Now, now you're really working for NASA, Marin. You, I know. Very graceful pivot there. That was, that was nice. <laughs> so go ahead. Go on. Thank so we're you. We're trying to eliminate the friction. Uh, we came up with this single portal reporting uh, plan. And SIFMA unfunded, but we joined with the National Adult Protective Services Association and our great tech partner, Eversafe, and representatives from two universities to propose a pilot single portal reporting platform. And in 2018, it was approved by the U.S. Department of Justice. So they accepted it and they agreed to fund the development and the piloting of the proposal. The platform was subsequently named Helpful, Helping the Vulnerable. Great name, but you realize how many times in the conversation on senior financial exploitation, you would use the word 
helpful? Um, so we had that going before COVID. Um, and it is helpful is a secure, unified reporting portal. It connects financial firms, adult protective services, uh, state securities regulators, the U.S. Postal Inspector General, which is great because that's a 50-state coverage, uh, and more. It can be law enforcement in some, in some cases. Uh, so you want me to just go into the process, Rich? Yeah, yeah, why not? I mean, so I mean, look, I, I've seen I've seen uh, the demonstration of the product, and it is important to keep in mind this is a pilot program and a possible solution, but it's but it's an idea that can save, I think, investors' lives. So go ahead, Marin. That's exactly right. Um, and honestly, in senior financial exploitation um, solutions generally, innovation has been key, and and it's come from a lot of different places. So. This is one idea. So a firm would create in a standard format report, a new referral in the helpful dashboard. Um, that re referral is securely and immediately sent to the agency users, the Adult Protective Services, State Securities Regulator, and the U.S. Postal Inspector General, maybe more. Simultaneously, Once, important to note. So, in one, real time. One button push, it goes to all three. Correct. Um, once the referral is accepted, then the case is assigned to the Adult Protective Services Agency or the investigating agency, which could be a state security director. Um, the agencies can add notes. They can ask questions. There's two-way uh, secure messaging. They can request supporting documents. They can attach a subpoena if required for those supporting documents. Um, and then the, the, the documents can come back through the secure portal. Um, they can view an audit trail, which has been really helpful. They can even search related cases now if they're trying to see if the same perpetrator is uh, responsible for a bunch of, bunch yeah, of cases. I, I find that to be incredibly useful. We do that through spreadsheeting, but it's a good feature. Yeah. And uh, let me just note here that once the financial firm makes the report, it's all of the investigating agencies that can see all the data. The financial firm can cannot see that once it's made. It is secure and confidential among the investigating agencies. Right. So um, we have right now uh, three states that have both their state securities regulator and their adult protective services on. We have uh, one state and another coming that has their adult protective services only right now, uh, but it will develop. And uh, we actually had one county that also piloted and implemented the program uh, in, in California. So, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because I saw something on LinkedIn today about somebody out in California uh, talking about, you know, the sadness of these problems <laughs> and that San Francisco had this system and that it, it, it was a tool that he felt, he was a state regulator, that he felt. Uh, or maybe not, well, it doesn't matter. The system was working in a way that he thought it was helping to, you know, stop the bleeding to use Deb's term. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, the thing is, in every single issue of senior protection, whether it's investors or, or fiscal harm, or whatever, we all know time is of the essence. So right. uh, something, this is one solution that can really save a lot of that time. No doubt. Um, let me let me just turn for a second to Ron and Debbie just to get it from the financial services side. You know, 
we will have our own concerns, APS and state regulators, obviously. But, but firms can't just sign on to the system without vetting it and, and making sure that, you know, to Tom's privacy segment, uh, that data is properly being handled. So, Ron, uh, Deb, uh, I know both of your firms have signed on. I think there are either 24 or 26 firms total. By the way, it is, it's, it's a start, but there are 3,500 registered broker-dealers in the country. Ron, uh, I, don't, I actually don't know who signed on first, Fidelity or Wells, but both of you will have a chance to talk. Ron, what did you do to get comfortable with this uh, notion of centralized reporting through Helpful? Sure. And to be clear, we're not on today because we've expanded. And this, I just want to point out to the audience, is one of the challenges. Your technology folks always get nervous. You ask them to make big changes. So we had started small in the brokerage part of the firm. And it was that comfort level of knowing if we ever got the one-stop centralized reporting, that's a benefit to the firms, it's a benefit to the customers, a benefit to APS and all the regulators. This concept of having to have a Bible, literally, to decide if this is a firm where you make a phone call, is this a firm that takes an email, a fax, just about everything minus smoke signals, I think, or variations of how you could report. And and, and Marin hinted at it, but a big benefit is this information is now all for the first time would be in one place where anonymized, we can get some true statistics. You go out today to ask whether this is stats on elder financial abuse, and you'll find things all over the place. Is it $3 billion a year? Is it $44 billion? We would use helpful, and it would tell us. Yeah, there's, you're right about the data. I mean, I'm, I'm in discussions with several agencies and some researchers and trying to figure out the actual size of the problem. Uh, in dollars, direct costs, and the biggest issue is getting good data uh, that can be merged for analysis. Uh, so I agree this would help with that as well. Deb, how did Fidelity get comfortable with the program? So it was a little it was a little challenging in the beginning, right? Because it's data, right? It's our data, it's our client data. And so you will have to jump through a couple of hoops. If you are considering, you know, getting helpful signed on, there will be, you know, tech people that will want to know how it works, risk people that will want to know how it works, right? I'm not gonna tell you it was easy, it wasn't easy, but it was worth it because it is so much more efficient from our perspective, and I would assume from APS and the regulator's perspective, because you are in one place, you can upload documents, you can print your report for your record keeping, you can communicate through the tool. So if there's a question that needs to be asked, you're not going back and forth with phone calls, especially with time changes. You know, if you have someone on the West Coast, you're on the East Coast. So much more efficient. You know, we have um, done some testing on how long some of these referrals can take us to make. And in some states, we're up to an hour of getting someone on a tele on the phone, of filling out a specific form and then faxing it in or emailing it to someone, um, getting someone to call you back, things like that. So we definitely think this is beneficial to us, to our customers, um, and just for the whole flow. It's just a much more efficient uh, approach. And we know it's going to the right place. We know we're clicking a button 
it's going to where it needs to go for that state because every state is different. We know it's going to the right place. By the way, one of the listeners asked if we could provide the website uh, for helpful. It's www.eversafe.com forward slash helpful with a V-U-L at the end. Marin, uh, you want to follow on on our friend's comments about uh, the system? Well, I think that's exactly right. I mean, we wish that there weren't so many cases, but an hour, for instance, <laughs> for each case would be far too many. And you're not able to uh, effectively source them and get them made. So um, I think that this just has so many benefits for streamlining. It's, you know, I think the, the biggest thing is the increase in collaboration and coordination. I think even um, one of the benefits that wasn't necessarily apparent on paper was just getting the people from the different agencies and states to get used to working with each other. They may not have known each other before. And now they have kind of a, an effective working relationship. Um, so, yeah, definitely saves time. There's collaboration, coordination. And Ray, um, uh, Ron's point on data is critical because we all know that the data is not great in here. Privacy is a big part of that. But getting better data is useful for everybody. The firms might be able to see, you know, what scams or fraud or or caregiver even issues are, are really starting to take center stage. The agencies can help support requests for uh, resource allocation, increase in resource, um, et cetera. So I think that we're really hopeful this starts to give out some useful data. And one I, thing I will add too ahead, is Ron. ideally this should be done by the industry voluntarily. Since we gave the disclaimer earlier, I will say if it takes federal legislation to have the agencies, have the firms all find this system, which does work, I think we should consider federal legislation. Because if we, we keep doing state by state, county by county, it'll be 21-22 before we get a system that works. Yeah. And by the way, and, and uh, Marin implied this and, and you two did as well. I mean, we're dealing with the caseload we're dealing with in 2022. I mean, is is there any doubt that the numbers are going to go up? There's there's just no doubt. And so anything that can be done to, uh, to redirect time that would be spent on the process of reporting to the to the solution finding in the space is, you know, it's simple elegance, frankly. Um, I actually, I, I, I see we have Heather uh, and and Tom and Nancy still here, uh, but not on camera. Do you guys mind coming back on stage with us? Because I'd, I'd like to get input from you three as well. And by the way, thanks, Deb and Ron and Marin for kind of setting the table. We have about five minutes and I'd like to, you know, just hear from you uh, what you think, Nancy. Well, you know, we have maybe 30 to 40 cases a year, right? So compared to, again, Debbie and Ron and others, you know, that's probably a drop in the bucket on the number of cases that you deal with in a year. So from the helpful uh, standpoint, if there are only a few agencies that are signed on to use this, I don't know if that makes a lot of sense for a firm 
of our size to sign on. So do you have any thoughts on that, Marin or Ron or Debbie? Marin, what would you say to that? I mean, if, you, if you've got 30 reports a year and, you know, all states on board, and this kind of makes Ron's point about federal legislation, doesn't it? Um, you know, is it worth the candle to go through the process of vetting it and getting comfortable with it for a smaller firm like Nancy? I think it's 100% worth it. Um, I think that the onboarding can be a little uh, simpler. The, um, the the tech is proven. The privacy is proven. Um, so it, it can be worked out pretty um, directly. Actually, the onboarding for some firms has been pretty quick. I think, you know, we have two very, very large firm examples. Um, but and. I'm going to use that as a uh, nice segue to say, if your state or financial firm is interested in learning more about Helpful, <laughs> to touch base with me, uh, mgibson at sigma.org, and I will put you in touch with uh, the people who can do that. But I do think it is, it is um, worth it. You know, and I would just add to that, that Nancy, I mean, it's certainly, are most of my cases in these select few states? No. But I felt like if I started down this road now, because I am very hopeful this is going to be nationwide, that I've already done the hard part, right? I've already jumped through the tech hoops and I've done all those things so that I'm not starting at square one when this spreads out, you know, to multiple states, Great especially point. states where we do have a lot of cases. And Marin has promised that she's going to get on board. For <laughs> yeah. The only thing I would add, Nancy, when you have that, one of the 30 cases that's very intensive, wouldn't it be easy, fun to be able to just email back and forth the questions, getting the answers, or pulling up the records when the evil attorney shows up and says, how could you have possibly done this? You'd have a quick, easy resource to get all of that information. Heather, any thoughts on this? Yeah, we I've started looking at it. We haven't signed up yet, but I, I in we have been trending upwards. I think we're going to see uh, 200 cases this year um, by my estimates. So I, I think it makes sense um, to Debbie's point to kind of jump on the bandwagon now. And, um, you know, as things trend upwards, and even though you may not be reporting in those specific states, I think, you know, as more states come on board, then you'll already be, you know, hopefully ramped up. But I agree. Anything, you know, selfishly that can save time because the, the referral process can be long and, um, you know, arduous at times. So anything to streamline that, I think, is, is fantastic. All right, Tom, I'm going to give you something I never give you in person when we see each other, and that's the last word. Uh, well, any, any is that of you because here? I moved my tie? Yeah, I do. I do see you don't have a tie on. Just, just for the audience, he was razzing me for not wearing a tie, and look where you are now. So, any thoughts here, Tom? So, I think that it could certainly helpful, be very beneficial. Um, I, I know Liz Lowy uh, for a long time was with Helpful, and it's a, it's a good organization, strong organization. Um, so, it's just as one agreed, it's it's it needs to be rolled out to more states for to have it provide the efficiency. That, uh, the potential it has, but we need it, and the reality will be when it gets rolled out to many more states. All right. All of you, a tremendous presentation. Thank you for all the time in the run-up, for appearing, and for doing what you do. Uh, next uh, 
next segment we'll do was going to be in the fall. Uh, we're going to take a summer vacation on this program. Uh, but the next one will feature state, federal, FINRA regulators, and APS agencies talking about it from their point of view, including the compassion, fatigue, and vicarious trauma. On behalf of Melanie, on behalf of NASA, corporate office, and, and all the others who helped put this together, thank you so much and have a great afternoon. Thanks for listening to NASA Talks with your host and producer, Karen Grahalis. This webcast episode was recorded in the spring of 2022. If you enjoyed this episode, please share this podcast with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch the latest from NASA, you can follow us on LinkedIn and on Twitter at NASA. 